it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hola. Como esta, bitches? <laughs> get down. What the hell are you doing? The cat jumped on the TV. I just get. Stop it. It's like he's being provoked by this. He's like, I want to go run on, jump on crap and destroy things. I shouldn't either. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Go under the bed. Stay there. Travis Miller, com, taking over for Casey, who still is MIA, working a lot of hours at bar in Lafayette, so I'll be filling in for him again tonight. And with me, as always, on the other end of the mic, we have Paul Banks. Paul, how are you doing tonight? Doing good, man. It's good to hear. It's good to hear. And we have a wonderful new topic, another Chicago-centric topic and a Chicago White Sox-centric topic tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about the infamous Disco Demolition Night which is, uh, it's always been an interesting uh, thing pretty close to me. My first job out of college, I worked making TV commercials up in Kokomo, and the lady that helped me get the job 
was the aunt of one of my longtime friends from all the way back in grade school. And she married a former major league pitcher from Kokomo by the name of Pat Underwood. Pat pitched for four years in the majors for the Detroit Tigers. And he was actually the winning pitcher in game one on Disco Demolition Night, which is uh, pretty impressive because I believe that was one of only 11 games he won over a four-year career. And uh, game two that night was canceled because of the melee in the outfield. But it's always been kind of a weird connection there to my hometown and everything else. And it's like, cool, I know a guy that was actually there. That's amazing. Yeah, it- that's a really nice guy. Uh, he would always come to uh, kind of the after work events that we would have for like friends and family of the employees and whatnot. And of course, I know his nephew. I've known his nephew for 30 years now and everything. And it's uh, just kind of neat because, you know, he, you know, is what is the local celebrity, the one of the few pro athletes we've had come out of Kokomo. And he was there that night. And for somebody who had such a short major league career due to injury, he had that. And he actually made his major league debut pitching against his brother, Tom Underwood, in Toronto. And I believe beat him one to nothing. So it was brother versus brother when Pat made his major league debut. Just like the Civil War, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, Canadians. <laughs> they were playing Toronto. But anyway, we're on to Disco Demolition Night. And so what What did you, what do you know as a Chicagoan about Disco Demolition Night? Well, I can tell you as someone who the first sporting event I ever attended was at this same venue six years later. So I grew up on White Sox baseball. I'm from the heart of White Sox country. And... Um, I was just actually at the park on, on on Saturday night, and they if you go upstairs to the upper deck, and they have this on the club level too. If you're fortunate enough to be there, they have these murals of White Sox history, and as you go through them, you can see that first off that the White Sox change their uniforms literally every five years, and sometimes and change their logo almost every five or ten years, and really bizarre. Also, change the colors a lot because there's a lot of sports teams, you know, rebranding, and I don't want to sound too corporate by using the word brand, but. It's, it's one thing to change the logo or maybe the uniforms, but they would change a lot of the colors. And this this may have been like the dumbest uniforms in all history, that team, because they they literally wore shorts. That is crazy. I've seen some of the pictures and they look like a beer league softball team. And it's so interesting when you look at the history of the White Sox and the Cubs, because for so long, both teams had just an epic drought of futility. You can make an argument of who was worse, the Cubs or the White Sox since 1908. And then of course the White Sox won in 19, uh, was it 1917 that they had won before they broke the streak in 2005? Yes. 1917. So, so you have two baseball teams in a city that just were terrible for decades. The Cubs were famous for their losing, whereas the White Sox just kind of uh, toiled in obscurity while having just as much failure. The Cubs, of course, have the fame of Wrigley Field and all that, the lovable losers, whereas the White Sox were, they were almost a sideshow in their own town. And uh, I think we know the reason for that sideshow, and that would be the infamous Bill Veck. Yes, Bill Veck, the zaniest owner in Major League history. Um, some would call him the best because of just completely off the wall nuts he was. 
he once sent a midget up to bat in the middle of a game. That that's my favorite with him is the fact that there is a midget that has an official at bat in Major League Baseball and reached base because he walked. Well, not an official at bat, a plate appearance. Excuse me. Yeah, he he wore the jersey number one eight. But it, that, that's how crazy this guy is, and I know that Vec was often just despised by the other owners because Vec was definitely. He's kind of the P.T. Barnum of Major League Baseball and uh, owned several teams over the course of his lifetime uh, before eventually owning owning the uh, White Sox. Uh, one of the teams that he owned was the Cleveland Indians and uh, I believe was the owner of the Cleveland Indians the last time they won the World Series, too. Well, you got to give him credit for that. And he was yeah. the perfect he was the perfect fit for the White Sox because. As somebody from White Sox country who's, you know, been growing up with this and know the White Sox have uh, that just that second team in their own in their own region ship on their shoulder. And everything is always going to be defined by that other by that other 400 pound gorilla in the room. So they're just desperate to get attention and desperate to do anything to get themselves on the map. Because, you know, at this time in 1979, Wrigley Field wasn't Margaritaville yet like that. In the early 80s, people weren't going to party and just, you know, drink then. Wrigley Field was, wasn't trendy either. And, and like you said, the Cubs were just atrocious. But um, and, and Wrigley Field didn't have lights yet either. It was the only ballpark in Major League Baseball that didn't have lights. So you have all-day games. Right. And um, the White Sox just had the perfect kind of – they were so bad. I mean, they were just, just brutal. And it's, it's July 12th. When uh, this event happened, it, it's the middle of the summer. No one really cares. No one's really paying attention to the team. And it's it's the height of the disco era. And along comes a man named Steve Dahl. Would kind of be your your pre-man cow, like your man cow muller before there was one. In some ways, he was kind of like Howard Stern. Definitely had the, the trolling um, hot take, you know, what... Shock shock is what you'd call it in those days. It was a, was a morning radio DJ, and uh, as we know, morning radio DJs operate on a different wavelength than most of humanity. Yeah, exactly. If you're if you're a morning show DJ, then you know you even really believe your own BS. At least I would hope. I think if you have any heart and soul and humanity, you don't believe the crap that you do. Anyway, you know that's just part of the whole shtick and he was the guy that you know from what i've read in chicago magazine about this the people who knew him thought he didn't really hate disco that much until he was at a radio station called wdai that converted format and they went all disco all the time so he got fired and of course that's a reason that's a reason to make someone hate disco for sure you know this is like you know i i guess the best analogy i could use is like like if you're sick of Katy Perry or Taylor Swift, you know you just gotta like grin and bear it, and you're just gonna have to hear Katy Perry and Taylor Swift. And I guess disco was like that times ten at the time. Well, and the other thing you gotta realize is in this day of age of satellite radio and all '70s stations and all '80s stations and whatnot, there isn't a satellite radio station that would go all Katy Perry or all Taylor Swift. The late '70s. <laughs> suck musically because I just the phrase a radio station going to an all 
disco format. <laughs> Sounds like a living hell to me. You know, that's the other thing that you have is there were multiple stations across the country that were doing this. And each, I mean, a city the size of Chicago, I don't know how many radio stations there were back in the day, but, you know, say they have 15 radio stations, that's still only 15 choices that you have to listen to and one going to an all disco format. Whereas today you've got hundreds of satellite radio stations, or you could just do what I do and drive around with your iPod plugged into your radio and whatnot, but going to an all disco format. Oh God, the seventies sucked. Right. And that's also just a very repetitive music genre. I mean, one of, one of the smartest things, some guy on my floor, my freshman year at school said, if, because he was in the ska, and this was like a year or two before the whole ska swing revival. And I'm like, dude, all your stuff sounds the same. And he's like, well, if you hate ska, all ska sounds the same. If you hate country, all country sounds the same. If you hate rap, all rap sounds the same. But disco really does have it. Ha- it has like three or four sounds, and you're like, oh my god, this all sounds the same. Because there, I know that there's a famous track out there that someone put the Star Wars theme to disco, and it, it sounds the same. And you just you can't adulterate Star Wars like that. I'm, I'm surprised it didn't kill the saga then before The Empire Strikes Back. But anyway, we go, we're going back to Steve Dahl here. He basically, because the station switched to an all-disco format, he goes to another station, and he essentially gets an army of listeners to hate disco in. Yeah, the, the, again, it's the late 70s. You don't have as many entertainment options and everything else. So it must have been easier to attract an army of people that hate disco. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, kind of what we were saying before, popularity leads to backlash. Extreme popularity leads to overexposure, and that leads to backlash. So that's kind of, you know, I, I from what I've read and heard, this night did not kill disco. It just showed the world that a lot of people were sick of it and didn't like it. And this event is perfect for the White Sox fan base and the South Side because, you know, not every South Sider, not every White Sox fan, but the stereotypes that exist, that exist for a region, the cartoon caricature of most made infamous by SNL in the 90s. You just have that, like, yeah, tough guy. Oh, yeah, I'm so tough. Get out of here, you... Yeah, I'm blue collar. I'll kick your ass. Yeah. That does not fly with a music genre where you have to wear white tight pants and dance around. Like, yeah, I don't dance there. I I listen to Skinner. I listen I listen to Steve Miller band. I rock out, you know, their guy. Like it just it it found the perfect home there. I can miss yeah, Kimiski Park. It's and that's fun. That's kind of where these two collide, because it seems like Steve Dahl and his ability to promote with his radio show and everything else runs into Vilvec, who never met a promotion that he did not like over the course of his career. And uh, at the time, Bill's son, Mike, was the one in charge of promotions, and he came up with the brilliant idea for a Twine Night doubleheader on July 12th, working with Steve Dahl to admit anybody that came with a disco record for 98 cents, which I've paid about that much to get into a Major League Baseball game. Uh, the, the lowest that I've paid was I got tickets for a dollar to a 
Kansas City Royals Minnesota Twins game in the Metrodome. It was the last week of the season. Both teams were well out of the playoffs. You know, there might have been 5,000 people in the stands. Uh, and that was with dollar tickets. But this is the late 70s. And what it, it was a hot summer night in Chicago. You have a discounted promotion for a bunch of, as you said, teenagers and early 20-somethings to get together and they can get in for less than a dollar as long as they bring a disco record to blow up. Uh, and that, that's another aspect of it that we'll get in there. And of course, you have the mind-altering substances of the late 70s. I believe some people have said there was almost a visible haze of marijuana in the stadium and cheap beer, which the 70s were also famous for the, the cheap beer promotions around Major League Baseball. You had 10-sit beer night in Cleveland, which resulted in all kinds of chaos. <laughs> Chicago had not learned from that. Who knew that getting about tens of thousands of people drunk really cheap would bring out certain elements and result in disaster? It's just the – yeah, it is just like the perfect storm because I'm, I'm reading about all these like contemporary sports writers and sports reporters that I know here who've covered the game and, and they're in this article that are in this magazine feature I'm reading about when they were, you know, smoking and drinking and they were, you know, one guy said he was jumping on the tigers dugout that day. I got, uh, the white Sox longtime radio guy today, Ed farmer, uh, fixing to his farmio. He was, he had his hat stolen after the first game, and he says he went into the crowd to go get his hat back. And let's let's also not forget another character that would be involved in this. My beloved Harry Carey, my favorite announcer growing up as a diehard Cubs fan. I remember Harry Carey as a kid. Well, at the time, he's working for the White Sox. And can you imagine poor Harry Carey, the guy that just loves baseball, having to sit and witness this? Yeah, I mean, he's, you know everybody's happy uncle happy grandpa thanksgiving who's had a little too much to drink but he means well and he's wholesome and he's he actually led or he tried to lead the crowd in singing take me out to the ball game as a way to get people off the field but before we get to why they're on the field in the first place let's see how many people are here first so first, Steve Dahl's main concern up to game day, day of, is he's worried no one's going to show up because the White Sox are drawing so terrible. He just thinks this is going to flop. Right, because it, it says here that the previous night's attendance was 15,520 people, which you see that in some major league parks today, but that's, that's bad for most teams today, unless you're the Tampa, Tampa Bay Rays or the uh, Miami Marlins. Right, Um the the park holds forty five thousand. Um, there was a quote from a security guard saying someone told him we're going to draw thirty thousand tonight, and they all started laughing. They're like, "There's no way you're getting thirty thousand here." Uh, by all attest, by the estimates are seventy thousand in total. Yes, yes. So the double header sells out, and they still have to play the first game. But you have forty five thousand that actually get into the stands. Some people think that maybe they got 50,000 in for a 45,000 seat stadium. So actually in the ballpark, you have a ridiculous crowd already, a crowd that nobody's used to handling at Comiskey Park. And then the other fact, another factor that made this so wonderful is you have people 
outside the ballpark trying to get in. About 20,000 more people trying to get in and they're having to turn away <laughs> at the gates. So you have an over overwhelmed security staff out there both trying to control a rowdy, boozed up, really high, and somewhat angry crowd also dealing with the outside people trying to get in. And I think there were cases of they were pulling down like barriers and just trying to get in. And then eventually they stopped collecting the records because they got so many records, right? Right. Well, they, they were scaling the walls with ladders and going past the gates. And there was a terrible strategic failure made in that uh, the ticket booths were just manned by these old senior citizens. And Bill Vack, I think... I don't know if this would fall. This doesn't look like it would be his jurisdiction, but whoever was in charge of security was like, all right, these old seniors in these ticket checks are getting nervous. And of course, deservedly so. And all these rowdy kids are rattling and trying to get in the park. So they took security off the field, off the stadium and pulled them outside of the parking lot. And then there's no one to stop it when, and this, and you know, this is going on in game one. Um, <laughs> because you're still playing a baseball game at this point. It was pretty clear from all accounts that this no one gave two Fs at all about the game here. This was this was like it reminded me of like the first Blackhawks title when you just have people, you know, dancing up on like truck beds who don't even know what a power play is. It's like you just want an excuse to go outside because it's summer and be drunk as hell. That's all. And that kind of seems to be what what people were showing up with these records and just whipping them around like Frisbees. And Ken Kravick, the White Sox starter for game two, is just like, yeah, he went to the bullpen to warm up and you just had to dodge flying shoes and you had to to dodge these records. And, you know, in game one, they're just – these records are getting lodged in the field. And and another thing, the factor is – if nowadays in Major League Baseball, if there's a doubleheader at a ballpark, it usually starts, what, I'd say 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and they try to make it a day-night doubleheader. Game one of the doubleheader, a nine-inning baseball game, which usually takes about three hours, give or take, was starting at 6 p.m. <laughs> so they were going to try and get six hours of baseball in, plus the, plus the uh, demolition part of Disco Demolition Night in the middle between games. They were going to try and do this all starting at 6 p.m. As people have already had all day to imbibe or partake of a substance of their choice. Right. Most accounts say that the crowd was more stoned than drunk. And that's why no one was really seriously hurt. There were 30-something arrests. But it is really (laughs) astounding that no one got hurt. Like, this is... It was just complete, utter chaos. And... And they blocked off the they blocked off the on ramp from the Dan Ryan. Which earlier this summer you have the uh, Dan Ryan protest and all the logistics that went in just for that. And that was you know they they planned that in advance. This was they blocked off Dan Ryan, which also blows my mind. It's it's amazing that they were able to get the field ready and like have a baseball game and get everything going on the next day. But it's also amazing and just astounding to think that they thought. This was going to work when they had about 20 to 30 dumpster bins of of records and they only blew up one because there were just too many. Like they would have blown up the whole stadium if they and it, it's it's interesting because we just 
it's something that's relevant today because what happened last week it was the, we saw the famous disgruntled people burning things they already own, which I don't know what that accomplishes. Well, I don't know. Maybe these people got disco records from someone else or they stole them to go destroy them. But I, I don't I don't know what they felt they're going to accomplish with this. But um, well, And they also weren't just throwing records. Uh, according to this account, I found they're throwing fire firecrackers, empty liquor, bot- liquor bottles and lighters onto the field, which I didn't know you could bring just full out liquor bottles into the ballpark. But again, this was the 70s. You know, you don't have a metal detector or anything. You can bring anything you want, apparently, into a Major League Baseball stadium. <laughs> It's a comp, yeah. Plus, with compromised security that stretched the limit, and you know, a drawing eight, nine, ten times what they expected. Uh, according to Chicago Magazine, I'm reading the excerpt. The first game ended at eight sixteen. The Tigers won four to one. At eight forty, Dahl, Meyer, and model Lorelai Shark, the Loop Rock Girl, came onto the field through a door in the center field wall. A Jeep commando was to take them on a slow tour around the park. Dahl wore military fatigues and a general's helmet. And then he goes on to say that all of a, it goes on to say that all three people in this Jeep and also a, a, the photographer from the loop who says he was hanging onto the windshield wiper in order to survive and make it back. All of them are just completely scared because the crowd is throwing beers and cherry bombs at them. And that's just like, this is the MC. Like, this is the host. This is who you came to see. This is who you actually like. And you're all throwing a bunch of crap at them. Well, as usual, it's like one person throws something and then a bunch of drunken high people are like, yeah, it's a fantastic idea. So, of course, they kept throwing it. Lorelai Shark, that's got to be a fake name, right? That can't be real. But- says here that she was a model that the radio station had hired, did some regular public appearances for them, and posed uh, provocatively for the station's advertisement. She actually threw out the first pitch, too. So I wonder whatever happened to her career. I wonder if, if this is the highlight or not. I would hope so. I mean, how do you how do you top this night? I mean, it's an epic night. So anyway, as you were saying, they have a Jeep driving them around the field, and they have brought on this gigantic box full of disco records. Um, Leave it measured, yes, four feet by six feet by five feet. So this is like a coffin size of disco records, full of disco records. And brilliantly decided they're going to bring this on the field and blow it up. Doll amped up the crowd. This is now officially the world's... Well, actually, no, I should probably read this like I'm him and I'm trying to... This is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. Now listen, we took all the disco records you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box, and we're going to blow them up real good. Four minutes later, the box was detonated, sending vinyl flying and generating a a cloud of smoke. Quoting the the radio guy slash socks pitcher, I said... Before we got his hat stolen. I don't think anyone knew how much explosives they used to detonate those records. They flew up at least 25, 30 feet in the air. I just cannot picture a Major League Baseball team exploding something in the middle of the field like that. I mean, you would never see this today. This is insane. And it, 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 the, you know, what's even more insane to me is 
it doesn't seem like they knew what they were doing with this explosion. Like they just had some like crazy Vietnam vet, like, yeah, I'm going to blow that stuff up. Yeah, I'm getting flashback from Da Nang. Yeah. So, so you have the explosion. And as you mentioned, the security personnel who was already, already overwhelmed. They were watching the gates to make sure nobody else was trying to get into the stadium. This is when you have five to 7,000 people running onto the field. So mass, mass chaos. It's basically the worst baseball brawl you've ever seen, which even then, that's what, 50 people? You have two 25-man rosters, maybe 60 by the time you get some bench coaches involved. This is a hundred times that of people just running on the field amok. Right, and it literally came out of left field. You have people trying to climb the foul poles, which, why? Yeah, climbing the foul poles. Um, according to Les Grobstein, just a, a radio broadcaster here, they were pouring lighter fluid, <laughs> lighter fluid down the foul pole. And it's, oh wait, I better, here, I'll read it in like his voice. I remember people on the left field upper deck pouring lighter fluid down the left field foul pole, which was metallic, so it wasn't going to burn. I witnessed that. I did. It, it, it says here also you have a bonfire going on in mid in center field. A bonfire reaching in center field. Uh, another person that was in attendance that night, uh, actor Michael Clark Duncan, 21 years old at the time, says that he had he slid into third base, had his silver belt buckle stolen, and he was able to go home with a bat from the dugout. So, obviously, the crowd is then getting into the dugout, which the players themselves at this point are almost having to wall themselves off in the clubhouse out of self-defense, too. Chicago Tribune writer Paul Sullivan. At some point, I went, uh, let's remember, he's not a Tribune writer at this point. He's at the game with his friends drinking Jack Daniels. <laughs> At some point, I went into the Tigers' dugout. We were messing around with the Jack Daniels we had brought. Tigers coach Alex Gramas was there. He said, is that your bottle? I said, yeah. And he said, hand it to me, would you, son? I said, yes, sir. I gave him the bottle. Then he asked me to leave the dugout. He was very nice about it. See, if it was Joe Madden, he would have let you stay, and then he'd drink with you. The 70s, man. The 70s. And I just, I can't imagine this because, you know, this was, this was three months before I was bored, but it's just, it, there's such a connection there. And then you just have all kinds of chaos going on on the field. Um, I think there's even been rumors of people actually having sex on the field at this point because, you know, who's going to stop them, really? Right. Yeah. You could pretty much do anything at this point. And for our loyal listeners of Let's Get Weird Sports, um, I think we referenced this in in the in the last episode, but I don't know because we in our file in our edits and our cuts and everything. But in just and for those who didn't hear it, um, the phrase it came out of left field is actually a Chicago thing too. Like that Oh really? Yes. That is um if you go into the Illinois Medical District and you're walking through the University of Illinois Chicago health system, you'll see plaques and signs from the West Side Grounds, which is where the Cubs, when they were a powerhouse, when they were a juggernaut winning all those titles in the in the nineteen aughts. You know, the days of Orville overall and Mordecai three finger brown. So the park stood next to a mental institution. And, and, you know, like I said, this is the medical district. And there were a lot of hospitals and everything in that era. 
in that era. Uh-huh. The psych ward was out by left field, and you know, this isn't the days of giant forty thousand seat stadiums. It was a lot smaller, so mental patients would watch the games through the window, and you know, you could pretty much hear them or maybe even like talk to them if you were the left fielder and. There's something called the Out of Left Field Foundation or organization today, even. So someone ran out of left field and stole second base, literally, and that's how this just storm erupted then. Because once yeah, so, I came and stole the base, then everyone's like, oh, I'm going to go on the field too then. Oh, yeah. So all hell's breaking loose. And then, it, as you said earlier, you have poor Harry Carey trying to calm the crowd down. Scoreboard is flashing. Please return to your seats and take me out to the ball game is being played. But unfortunately, nobody, I mean, nobody's going to pay attention at this point. You know, it's just people are all over the field and, and you still have fires, actual fires on the field. It blows my mind. At this point, they have to call in. They actually had to call in uh, police and pull out riot gear. Full riot gear show up. Right. And, you know, this is when it, it got pretty serious because I, I believe the charges were vandalism or tr- criminal trespassing. But, I mean, just just so we could hit all the Chicago stereotypes tonight, we, we had some, 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 uh, some A-list police brutality going on. But <laughs> Well, I mean, at this point, you're only 11 years short of the famous 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, too. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm betting that there was at least, there had to be at least 10 officers that were in riot gear that were like, hey, I remember 68, let's do this. Right, because the Soxogram, the scoreboard message reading, please return to your seats, didn't exactly get the job done. So... You know, I, I'm I'm kind of with the police brutality on this one because I know what an idiot I was in my late teens and early 20s. And at this time, I was a year and a half, so I was a little too young to be there. So the, the other fascinating aspect of this is you still have people in the stands that are there to just watch baseball. And they're waiting for the second game calmly and patiently. They actually cheered when the riot police that showed up so can you imagine it some grandfather taking his grandson to this game and seeing this crowd of idiots just destroy the field right because if you're going for 98 cents i mean that's oh, a yeah. game to take kids and bring a whole family and beer was literally 90 cents i mean those poor kids man. so the riot police actually clear the field and a couple, you know, 39 people are arrested, which they arrested 39 people out of a couple of thousand that were on the fields. So, you know, that like Michael Clark Duncan getting away with the bat, you know, that just all kinds of stuff has happened. The umpire actually ruled the field was so torn up uh, that it was not even playable after the groundskeeper spent an hour clearing the field. We should also notice that, OK, this is from the White Sox group sales team member at the time. The field was so wet from bad drainage and concerts, Bill Vex's peg leg kept sinking into the mud. The poor guy was literally trying to balance on one leg. We forgot to mention that the Sox owner had a wooden leg that he would ash his cigarettes into. And how did he lose the leg? He was a World War II veteran. He lost the leg in the war. True patriot. Oh, yes. So... Sparky Anderson, the Tigers manager, refuses to let his team on the field, and they eventually just postpone the game to Sunday. Anderson is demanding that the game be 
forfeited to the Tigers. It was argued that the game could only be postponed due to an act of God, which obviously this is not an act of God. This is an act. Well, if it's an act of God. It's Dionysus or the God of tits and wine. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> act of lunacy and stupidity. So eventually the second game is forfeited uh, by the American League president uh, because the White Sox failed to provide acceptable playing conditions, which is probably the smartest thing that anybody did in this whole event. Right. I mean, anytime your field is on fire, I, I don't know how you come back from that the same day. I think that's I think you need to take a couple days off there. And uh, what it it was in a way, in a roundabout way, a precursor to I'll have to look it up for sure, but I think it's 2002 and 2003. The White Sox had back-to-back incidents of fans jumping on the field, um, attacking. It was the Kansas City Royals base coach. Oh, yes, yes the, the father and son that just had the brilliant idea to act alone and attack the Royals' first base coach. Which, Why? I mean, I, I've been pretty drunk in my life, and I've done some stupid things. But I have never thought, you know, it's a great idea to run on the field and attack a first base coach. Right. And if for people listening to this, I want you to Google William Leakey Jr. And <laughs> you'll just see like a shirtless, like mangy rat looking like it's just the perfect like stereotype of like the worst of the worst of the worst stereotypes of White Sox fans. Oh, yes. You just look at this guy and you would think like this is nothing but a character on on the show Cops. And then after that, umpire Laz Diaz was attacked. White Sox fans jumped on the field again after that. So I want to give a shout out to my Aunt Donna, who used to take me to White Sox games as a little kid all the time. Because no one else in my family wanted to go. But what was so funny was, like, she, 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 it, to this day, she thinks baseball is the most boring thing on the planet. And she would take me and, you know, you know, God bless her heart, you know, when she hears this. I want to thank her for She would go and read a book the whole time. And then we had to leave in the seventh inning stretch to beat traffic. Now, why couldn't, like, this have just come along seven years later and she could have taken me to Disco Demolition Night? Guarantee her she wouldn't find baseball boring. I track the number of Major League Baseball games that I've been to on the MLB app because it's pretty handy and I'm trying to get to every park eventually. According to my app, I have been to 100 Major League Baseball games and I've never even seen so much as a bench clearing brawl, so I can't imagine anything like this. This is just nuts. So, you know, you have some of the aftermath there. You have one of the players is like, never would have had this. Uh, let's see what player was the one that said this. Uh, White Sox pitcher Rick Wortham said this wouldn't have happened if they would had a country and western night. No, yeah, right. A genre where every song is about being you know, wasted all the time that your wife leaves you and your dog dies. And right, that's that's not going to lead to anything bad. Uh, Mike Vick, who is still around, the son of Bill Vick, uh, in July 2014, he owned the Charleston River Dogs, a minor league team in Charleston, South Carolina, playing in the South Atlantic League. In 2014, he had a Justin Bieber sucks night and had them destroy Justin Bieber CDs. Again, man, destroying stuff. It's already been paid for. It's already there. I just, but I didn't hear anything about uh, Charleston, South Carolina, burning to the ground. So I'm assuming that one went off without a hitch. That that is true. You know, by some means, this was the the most successful promotion in Major League Baseball history. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, if you believe that there is uh, no such thing as no such thing as bad publicity, yeah, then yes, it is. And also in terms of getting people in the well, I would say getting people in the seats and then getting people out of their seats and onto the field. And but in terms of getting people to the ballpark, you'd have to say this is the best promotion in Major League history. Oh yes, definitely, and it's definitely something that you're not going to see ever again. Uh, I I don't think the Baltimore Orioles this year, because they are pretty epically bad, I don't think that they're going to try and fill the seats at Camden Yards here in September with a with their own disco demolition night or anything like that. I was going to say, I mean, you, you kind of hit on a lot of good points there with um, Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, like the backlash against pop music. Oh, I go back to what you said earlier. You can just turn the channel. There's so many other options. Yeah, and it, it's just you're. I don't think there's anything that's going to draw that much hatred anymore. All right, so that's uh, that's disco demolition night. Uh, do you have any uh, final points that you want to make? Yes, uh, getting back to the mural um, that is on that is at the current White Sox ballpark that's on its fourth name. We I noticed that both White Sox topics that we covered are kind of whitewashed throughout history. Um, there is a shoeless Joe. There's plenty of pictures of shoeless Joe Jackson. There is, um, some 1919 White Sox photos, but there is no mention of the scandal. And when you get to the seventies era, there's a giant picture of, I think Oscar Gamble, or maybe it was Chet Lemon. It was a guy who had giant Afro with the pick in his hair. And there is a 1970s promotion and you see the players in those beyond stupid, uh, beer league uniforms with the shorts and the ugly polo shirts and they're stacking cases of beer on the field and that's what they have from the wacky era of weird promotions in the 70s was a beer stacking night they they did not touch disco demolition night oh that's unfortunate that's so unfortunate it will always live on we have it remembered it's now immortalized, not only in this podcast, but it's been immortalized in a bunch of other ones. And it is definitely going to have its own chapter in baseball history. So uh, I know uh, you had mentioned another idea for the Let's Get Weird 4. Uh, so do we want to tease the audience for that or no? You know, I think we could because I see two that are going to be very, very timely. Okay, go for it. Um, the next one, I think, with 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 Purdue traveling to Illinois in mid-October, we have the story of the 1984 Rose Bowl and the 1983 Illini team that, why they blew the Rose Bowl in which they were heavily favored, the famous urban legend of the Playboy Mansion party on New Year's Eve, because Hef is an Illini alum, and it was the first time Illinois had been in the Rose Bowl in 20 years, and it's a story that, Every Illini kind of knows, and it's one that has never been discredited or discounted. So it's it's pretty much true, and it's really, I would say, it may be the most interesting thing the Illinois football program has done in a long time. And by the time we get to that point in the season, we may be hurting for interesting things about uh, that team. That sounds wonderful, and it's just unfortunate that that uh- – particular line I team did not involve Jeff George because can you imagine that mullet showing up at the Playboy Mansion? Oh my god. Yeah. It it would have been just so perfect that because it because it was the mid eighties too. Like 
but that that is one. The other one is um, on Friday. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Skip Desjardins, who penned a book about September 1918. And once again, we're going back to the 19-teens. And this time, we're switching the socks from white to red. Um, very interesting that this weird confluence of factors. You had the Boston Red Sox. Uh, behind a scrappy youngster named Babe Ruth pitching. Well, actually, no, he was already slugging the crap out of the ball at this point, but he was still a pitcher by definition. Beat the Cubs. So the Red Sox beat the Cubs in the World Series, and it was the last time the Red Sox would obviously win the series for 86 years. But what made this interesting was that this was the first month America entered World War One, and it was a Massachusetts-led battalion that, kind of fired the first shots on the Germans in France. And it was all this series and everything that's going on in Boston and Massachusetts was set against the backdrop of a deadly wave of Spanish influenza. So, so the influenza breakout started in the military barracks and then it spread to the civilian population. It's riveting. I I, I got the book. uh, It arrived just two days ago and I, I went through the first chapter and, I think that'll be a great one for um, for October. Maybe, maybe oh, we yes. get the Red Sox back in the series. Maybe we'll get the Red Sox and Cubs in the series. Who knows? And, and it won't be the apocalyptic doom that we once thought it would be. And I, the Spanish influenza is one of those things that I've always. It's almost like a modern Black Death if you look at it. And I, that's I've got a familial connection to that because when I was doing some genealogy work a few years ago. I discovered that my great grandfather, uh, the and that was the father of my mother's dad, actually died of the uh, Spanish flu in 1918. And fortunately, it was after my grandfather was born; otherwise, I wouldn't exist. So, but my uh, my grandfather was about a year and a half old at the time, and I found the obituary, and it said specifically he died of uh, uh, of it influenza and like he was like in his late 30s so just amazing how that affected the entire world at the time too i did, i had no idea this topic hit so close to home for you oh yeah it, it, well, it affected everybody it killed millions around the world and uh, they part of it was is it's related to world war one that actually helped the spread of it too so but we can get more into that later on and uh, we do hope you enjoyed a, another, a, a third episode now of the Let's Get Weird pod, Sports Podcast. Uh, so for myself and for Paul, we uh, thank you for listening and stay tuned for another one, hopefully pretty soon.